Good morning. My name is Luke. Uh, I am one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and it is great to be with you. Uh, if uh, this is one of your first times with us, um, we have these connection cards where it's the bulletin on the front and the connection card on the back. And so uh, you may not need to this week, but if you want to, you can pick one up and you can leave it um, with the computers over there. We'll make sure that we get it, uh, fill it out. We'd love to be able to uh, get to know you a little bit and share some more information about our church uh, with you as well. So with that, let me pray and ask God for his help. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, just as we heard Amy read, the way that Ezra set his heart upon the word is with the sort of people that we want to be as well. Lord, would you make us people dedicated to your word? And we pray, God, that you would work through your word this morning to see your people built up and to see the nations be glad as we have sung in our salvation through Christ alone. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the month of August. August is a bit of a strange month, if we're perfectly honest. It's not at the beginning of the year, and it's not in the middle of the year. It's a couple months off the middle of the year, and yet it tends to be a time when people are looking forward to the next year, largely because a lot of schools start back in September, and so churches follow ministry calendars kind of based on the school year. Some of you are teachers. Some of you have kids in school. And so August is a time when we begin to look forward, not just in a normal month, but look forward to another year. And it tends to be a time when, if you're anything like me, you begin to think about what sort of things should I be focusing on this year? What what are my hopes for this next year? What are my priorities for this next year? And when we're asking those sort of questions, we should do so prayerfully. So we should go and we should ask God for help and direction, and the Lord loves to answer those prayers. But one thing that we find is that God has actually told us the sort of things that we should be focusing on this next year. He's told us what we should be doing for the next school year, as well as for the rest of our lives. He's revealed it to us in his word. So, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that God tells us, what's the will of God for you for this next school year? This is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness, that you would be holy as God is holy. We see this in Micah. God says, what's required of you? What do I want you to do this next year? I want you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We see this in Jesus' words in Matthew 28. Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What sort of things should you be prioritizing this next year? Well, that is one of those things that you should be prioritizing. As an evangelical church, we believe that God reveals himself to us through his word. If, you, if you've ever wondered what the term evangelical means, it, it means gospel, but that theology, an evangelical theology, is one that believes in the authority of the Bible. And so we believe that God's spoken to us through his word and that we can read the word and know what he has said. 
And in Ezra 7, we see four priorities for the people of God, both now and for the rest of their time on earth. Four priorities for the people of God. And, and, and here's the main thing that we're going to see this morning. It is this. It's in God's sovereign rule, so God is the king, and in his rule, he uses a pagan king to ensure that his covenant people prioritize that which he values. So basically, he's saying, I am going to use this pagan king to make sure that my people value that which I value. We've seen over the last number of weeks, if you've been with us through our study in the book of Ezra, God has been working through the different challenges and difficulties that the people of Israel have faced as they've gone back into the land in which they were removed from. Last week, Pastor John showed us God's good purpose, even in difficult situations. And this week is no different. Ezra 7, where we're in now, begins a whole new section of the book of Ezra. The first six chapters were focused on rebuilding the temple and the difficulties that the people of Israel experienced as they were rebuilding the temple, preparing to worship God. In Ezra 7, all the way through the book of Nehemiah, actually, we have a whole new section. They're there in the land. The temple is rebuilt. What should they do? And through the rest of chapter 7 to the end of the book of Ezra, we see not a focus on rebuilding a physical temple, but a focus on laying a spiritual foundation. One of my professors in seminary said, rebuilding the spiritual walls of the city. What sort of things should God's people have in place in order to worship him rightly? And there's three movements, if we're just going to work through the text quickly, that we can see these are the sort of things that this passage is bringing out. The first is that we see is we see that Ezra returns to the land. Ezra's return to the land. Now, he may have never actually been there originally. He may have gone back for the first time, but Ezra as an Israelite is going back into the promised land. This is what Amy read for us in verses 1 through 10. We're finally introduced to Ezra, the man whose name bears this book, whose book bears his name. We finally meet him. This is what it says in verse 1. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zeruiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. One of the benefits of having to have the pastors read these names is you realize, like, we don't know how to pronounce them either. So whenever you get to read in your Bible, you're like, I don't know how to pronounce it. It definitely isn't Buki, what I just said. But anyway... <laughs> Ezra was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of his Lord, his God, was on him. Now, these verses take place 60 years after chapter 6 ends. So in our Bibles, it's just a little small white space. Maybe it's turning a page. This was 60 years after the Passover was celebrated for the first time back in the land, what John saw and showed us last week. King Artaxerxes is Darius's grandson. 
Now, the first part of Ezra is a little bit hard to follow in terms of the chronology, but Artaxerxes in chapter 4 temporarily pauses the work on the temple and the work in the land because there are people who raise a complaint. But once the decree of Darius is found, Artaxerxes resumes the work in the temple and on the land. In fact, he sends Ezra, the scribe, to Jerusalem with a set of instructions saying, this is what I, king of the Persians, want you to do when you get back into the land. But who is Ezra? Who is this guy? Well, we just read, and these verses tell us, he's, he's a descendant of Aaron, a descendant of Aaron. Now, that's really important because Aaron was the priest, Moses' brother, which means that it is literally in Ezra's DNA to conduct the right worship of God. He is a descendant of Aaron. He's also a student skilled in the law and a teacher of the law. It's called a scribe. So his job was to dedicate his time to studying the Mosaic law and to teach people what it says. We'll see this in uh, the book of Nehemiah, if you're reading that. You can see Ezra stood up and he read the law and he gave the sense. Much kind of like what we're doing in preaching as we read the Bible and we tell what it means. It also says that he's favored by the king, right? We see that in our passage. The king granted him all that he asked. So he's not just a good scribe whose DNA it is to do right worship, but he is favored by the king. And the reason for that is because he is empowered by God himself. The good hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 10 gives us an insight into his character. Because you can be all these things and not actually have a heart that loves God. You can know the Bible, you can teach people the Bible, and not actually love God. But that's not what Ezra was like. Verse 10 shows us that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra is not a hearer only. He is a doer. And he wants other people to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, the way that God's law calls them to. That's why Ezra is ultimately given the job by God, first and foremost, and under God by Artaxerxes. But what is Ezra supposed to do? Well, that's where we see Ezra's tasks. We see uh, the copy of, if you keep reading in your Bibles, John's mentioned this, this is a really good time to have a physical Bible open or your phone because we're not going to read through all of these verses, but you can look at verses 11 through 26, and we can sum up the things that Ezra is told to do with five different jobs. Ezra is supposed to figure out what's going on in the land, especially as it relates to worship. So in chapter 6, Darius's letter said, make sure that the temple is rebuilt and that supplies are given and that worship is happening. Well, Artaxerxes, Darius's grandson, wants to find out, how's that going? So he sends Ezra back. Verse 14 says, for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors, Ezra, to make inquiries in Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. So Artaxerxes, this pagan king, says, I want to know what's going on. So I'm sending Ezra to find out. And then Ezra, once he gets there, is supposed to purchase supplies for the temple and then to 
offer sacrifices. So use those supplies, those animals, to be able to make sure that right worship is happening. Verse 15, if you just keep reading, you're sent to make inquiries and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. So Ezra is supposed to buy supplies and then make sure that the sacrifices are made. He's not supposed to make sure those animals are kept and just a farm is beginning to take place, or he's not supposed to make sure that the utensils go in somebody's house. He's making sure that worship is happening with the king's resources. And then he's also supposed to appoint leaders in the city, magistrates and judges who will ensure the Mosaic law is followed. We see that in verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And Ezra himself, for those people who don't know the law, Ezra is called to teach them. So he's, he's called to teach those who do not know the law of God. He's both to appoint judges and civil leaders, as well as to teach the people. Now, Artaxerxes is a pagan king. He does not believe in the God of the Old Testament. He doesn't follow the Mosaic law himself. He was a polytheist, which means he worshiped many gods. So the question is, why would a pagan king want Ezra to make sure that the law is followed? Well, we see the answer in verse 23. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, notice Artaxerxes doesn't use, it's not capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's not Yahweh. He's whatever the God of heaven says. Let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven. Why? Lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. So Artaxerxes is mostly concerned about his own kingdom. He says, look, I'm a polytheist. I have no issue with there being other gods, right? So it's not like Islam or Christianity that believes in one God. He believes in many gods. So he's like, what am I going to do? I'm going to make sure they're happy because when they're happy, I'm happy. My rule is great. I don't want a God to curse my rule. And so make sure that this is taking place. He's likely done this with lots of different gods, lowercase g, from the kingdoms that he has conquered. But just because that may be his motivation, verse 27 and 28, which we'll see in a moment, shows that there is a God of heaven who is behind it and that he is the one who ultimately wants the people to do these tasks. As Proverbs 21 puts it, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So even a pagan king, his heart is in the palm of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will. And this leads us to see Ezra's response to his tasks. Verse 27, Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, 
who put such a thing as this, here Proverbs 21, into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Ezra recognizes that these tasks didn't come from the king alone, but God is the source of these directions. It's one of the reasons why we can read these and we can look at the things that Artaxerxes said you should do. And we don't just say, well, why would I listen to a pagan king? You would listen to a pagan king because God put it on his heart. Because God is ultimately the one who is behind it and who is working through this pagan king in order to see his people worship him rightly. Ezra's response reveals a full, big, beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. God puts desires in the hearts of pagan kings according to his good pleasure. God gives his scribe favor before the king in order to see his purposes made. And God empowers his people to be courageous, even in difficult situations. Ezra responds with courageous obedience because he recognizes that more than Artaxerxes, God is on the throne that God is ruling and reigning and God's purposes cannot be stopped. And this letter doesn't ultimately lay down a pagan king's priorities, but God Almighty's priorities. So he trusts the Lord and carries out the desires of his earthly king in service of his heavenly king, which leads us to see different priorities for the people of God. What sort of things should the people of God be focusing on be prioritizing both the people in Ezra's day who originally would receive Ezra's teaching and ministry as well as us today, thousands of years after this letter was originally written. Well, Ezra 7 shows us four different priorities. We're going to walk through them one by one. The first priority is the priority of knowledge the priority of knowledge. Specifically, God wants his people to know him through his word. Ezra himself recognized this. He was personally empowered by God. He loved the Lord with all his heart. And because of this, as verse 10 tells us, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it to God's people. He studied the law himself. He taught it to others. But why is this such an important priority for Christians? Why is this such an important priority that we would know God through his word? That we would know what God's word says? I mean, I don't know if you've read the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible. It's tedious. There's some details in there that require careful study. Why is it worth it for us to go through that process? Because the truth is, you cannot worship him who you do not know. And you cannot know God apart from knowing God's word. You cannot obey that which you do not know. If you don't know what's required of you, then you have no ability to obey and to keep the law in the first place. In 2018, I remember I was living in Dubai at the time, and there was a news story about a British tourist who came to Dubai 
rented a Lamborghini, basically had it for like a three-hour stretch, and blazed down Sheikh Zayed Road at 230 kilometers an hour. He was just flying. He was here on vacation. He had the money to rent a Lamborghini. I don't know if he had any money more than that, but he had the money to rent a Lamborghini, got in a fast car. What's he going to do? He's going to fly. Turns out, what he didn't know is that the police don't tend to pull you over here in the UAE. There are traffic cameras. And those traffic cameras don't tend to be like, oh, you sped by one. You must have been speeding. If you speed by another one, it's okay. We're just going to charge you one time. No, they charged him for every camera that he blazed by in a three-hour period. His fine was over 100,000 dirhams. That was an expensive rental of a Lamborghini. Well, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in America, I'm guessing this guy thought that he was probably doing okay. I didn't see any police officers. Right? No one pulled me over. I just was able to run a f- fast car and get away with it. I had fun. But imagine what the police would say when he said, I didn't know that was how it worked. I never would have ran so many traffic cameras if I would have known that I was being fined for every time I saw that light go off behind me. What would the police say? Would they say, it's okay. You were ignorant. You were naive. You don't know how things work in our land. No. They're going to say, give me my 100,000 dirhams. In the UAE, ignorance is not an excuse for disobedience. The same is true in God's world. God is the king. And just because we can say, well, I didn't know that's what this said, doesn't mean that we can plead ignorance as an excuse. If you look at the Old Testament in Josiah's day when the scroll is found and the law of the Lord is discovered after years and years of neglect, Josiah sees it and he sees how great the wrath of God is upon his people because the law had been ignored. Josiah didn't say, well, we misplaced it. We, of course we didn't know what it said. We hadn't been able to read it. I left my Bible on there and I've never found it since. No, he saw wrath was coming because ignorance is not an excuse. As Christians, we worship a God who is knowable. This doesn't mean that we know everything about God. Right? We don't know God as he is in himself. There are mysteries but it does mean that we can know God truly as he has revealed us, revealed himself to us. We know because he speaks through his creation, through his word, and ultimately, the Bible says, through his son, Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. You cannot look at creation and come to a knowledge that Jesus died in your place. You cannot study the stars and know that Jesus died to pay for sins. You can reason and learn mathematics and science and literature and see divine order 
but you can't see the extent of divine love. While we were enemies of God, he sent his son to die for us. That will only come through hearing and reading the word. What this meant for Ezra and what this means for us is that we should give our lives to know this book. One of the reasons why we shape our worship service around this book is to be able to help you know what the Bible says. We're actually in September. We're going to be doing a whole sermon series on why we do what we do when we gather together. But you can just see the different ways that the word of God is shaping our worship. We do a call to worship because we don't come to God on our own terms. He is the one who speaks to us through his word and invites us to come in his grace. We don't, like the Tower of Babel, build our way up to heaven. We come by the invitation of the king. We sing songs that are shaped and saturated with God's word. We read from scripture, not only in the sermon text, but in other parts of our service. And then we try to pray in light of what God's word says And we preach expositionally, working through different passages to be able to see the whole scope of what God says because it's all God's word and it's all for our good. And and that shouldn't just be one day a week for you. That should be something that you do every day, that you dedicate your life to knowing this book, that you read it and meditate on it day and night. An easy way to do that is through our church's fighter verses. So we have fighter verse sheets right over there that you can pick up and Every week, we memorize Scripture together, and it's a way that we fill our minds with the truth of Scripture, and we meditate on it so we can fight the fight of faith. God wants us to prioritize knowing Him through His Word, but knowledge is not the full story. Ezra 7.10, in fact, doesn't even stop there. We see that Ezra obeyed the law as well, and this leads to the second priority, obedience. God doesn't just want his people to know truths about him to be able to pass a theological exam. God wants his people to do what he says, to trust him with every area of their lives and to show this trust through obedience to him. According to scriptures, the way in which we experience blessing is through obedience. The way in which covenant blessing comes is through obedience to the covenant. In Ezra's day, this meant following the Mosaic law. This is why Ezra wants to make sure that all the laws are done, that sacrifices are offered rightly, that the way the temple is supposed to run is running, that people do what is in line with God's word. This is why Ezra made sure there were magistrates and judges in order to make sure the law was kept in the society. The whole reason why Israel and Judah were in exile in the first place was because they didn't obey the law and God removed them from the land. They didn't experience blessing, they experienced curse. There's no blessing without obedience. But that doesn't mean that we earn our blessing through our obedience. As Christians, the obedience that earns our blessing is Christ's. This is really important to get. 
because otherwise you are no different than the culture that we live in and the society that we live in that's just trying to do all the right things in order to get God's favor, to get God's blessing by checking all the boxes. That's not the way it works for Christian. The blessing that comes from Christian is not based on our obedience. It's based on Jesus's obedience. He obeyed the covenant law perfectly. And all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. It is his obedience that earns us the blessings of the covenant. Israel did not keep God's law. You will not be able to keep God's law. If you try to earn the blessing by yourself, you will fail. But Jesus came, and Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's law. He purchased the blessings of God for you. He obeyed God's word perfectly. He never once sinned. His obedience earned all the blessings of God, and then he gives it to those who walk by faith. Those who turn to him and repent of their sins by faith. This is what Pastor John said in the, for the pastoral prayer, the fact that we are forgiven We don't experience the curse of the law. We experience blessing because of Christ's obedience. But this faith is not a one-time act. Sometimes we look and we say, well, I believed in Jesus when I was a child, or I believed in Jesus at one point in time. And we just, kalas, now I can go and live my life the way that I want to. But that's not the way it is. The New Testament describes a life of faith, a life where every step is turning to Christ, where day in and day out we walk by faith and experience the blessings that he has purchased for us by faith, Faith faith-filled obedience. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. He says it, the obedience of faith. For Christians, obedience and faith are not at odds with each other. Faith fuels obedience. Obedience is the obedience of faith, if it's going to matter at all. In Galatians 2, Paul writes that I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Every day is a life of faith, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we obey God's word, not by trying to do it all ourselves, but by turning to Christ in faith and trusting that what he has said about every area of our lives is true and walking by faith and dependence upon his spirit by his grace. And do you know the joy that comes through that obedience? Sometimes we can look at obedience and we can think it's something that I have to do not something that I want to do. Because I really want to do this other stuff. That's where all the fun is. That's where all the happiness is. But do you know the joy of obedience? Do you really know in your heart of hearts that obeying God's command leads to greater happiness for you than sin has to offer? In fact, so often we don't know the joy of obedience because we give in to sin too soon. And we never realize how happy we would have been if we had not. That's actually one of the greatest consequences of sin in this life. 
is that it keeps you from knowing how happy you would have been if you hadn't have sinned. Like C.S. Lewis, the English writer, says, we are like children who are perfectly happy making mud pies in the slums because we can't imagine what a holiday at the beach is like. That, no, I don't want to go there because I just have my mud. That's like when we settle for sin. We don't realize that there's waves and sand and sun and fun that we can't ever imagine because we've settled for sin. Or to change the illustration, it's like we fill up so much on junk food in the afternoon that we have no appetite for the main course and for the dessert of obedience. We fill up on the junk food of sin and we never learn how satisfying obedience is. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to be as happy as you can be. I really believe that. I believe that God wants you to be as happy as you can be, and that will only come through faith-filled obedience to God. Our knowledge is meant to lead us to obedience. The third priority that we see in these verses is that God's people should care about justice. Ezra was to appoint civil leaders in order to make sure the law was carried out. Now, there are differences in the way that the Old Testament, the people of God, related to the state, to the civil society, and the way the New Testament, people of God, the church, relate to society. But God's people should still care about justice and work towards it. And the reason is because justice has a standard that it must conform to. Right? To know what's right and to know what's wrong is to have a standard to determine that. That moral standard is God himself. He is the one who reveals what is right and what is wrong. Sometimes we can think of God being a God of justice as if justice is the standard that God conforms to, like there's right and wrong and God lines up with that. But the reality is we know what's right and wrong by knowing God. His character is what leads to justice. What this means for the people of God is that our pursuit of right and wrong in our individual lives and in our society should be aligned with what God says right and wrong is in his word. Just because our culture says this is right and this is wrong doesn't mean that it's true. We test our culture against the scriptures. Some things might be true by common grace. Other things might need to be twisted back into what God says, and other things might need to be gotten rid of. It depends on what the Bible teaches. But because true justice reveals the character of God, this means that Christians have no choice but to care about justice. In some circles, you bring up the word justice and it becomes controversial all of a sudden because people assume one thing or another. But justice says something about God, which is why corruption, which is why deceit, which is why partiality and favoritism are so wrong, is because it says God doesn't care about truth. God doesn't care about right. God shows favorites. Christians should care about biblical justice and pursue it in our individual lives and in our societies. And this leads to our final priority, worship. 
Ezra 7 is chiefly about cultivating right worship. All the other tasks, knowledge of the word, obedience to the word, justice in society, are for the end goal of worship. They are all expressions of worship when done in faith, that God is great and worthy of every aspect of our lives. All the knowledge and obedience are pointed towards worship. In the Old Covenant, that was the temple. That's where a lot of this happened, and that's why it was so important that the temple gets rebuilt. Priests led the worship. Animals were sacrificed. Holy bread was offered. But in the New Testament, where does worship go through? It goes through Jesus. Jesus is our temple. We meet God through Christ. He is our priest. He is our sacrifice. We feast, as we will in a moment, upon his broken body and his shed blood. All of our worship goes through Christ. And then having come to God through Christ, we live lives of spiritual worship, day in and day out. So what Romans 12 says, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is not done once per week. Worship is not something that you do only when you're singing or only when you are in church. We worship God when we show his greatness and his worth in every area of our lives. We worship God in the morning when we read our Bibles. We worship God in the morning when we eat our breakfast. We worship God in the morning when we go to work. We worship God in the afternoon, in the evening, through every aspect of our day, when we bring all of our lives into submission to his greatness, when we live to show his worth. And God wants our worship not because he is needy for it. Don't be confused. God, God doesn't say, worship me because I have a low self-esteem, and if you don't worship me, I'll feel bad about myself. We do not add anything to God. We recognize God when we worship. God wants us to worship not because he is needy, but because we are. We need God. We need God's greatness. We need to be happy in God. The chief reason you exist is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. That is your reason you are here on this world. And you will never be as happy as when you are worshiping God truly from the heart. That is how you will experience happiness forever. So as many of us begin to look at the next year, the next school year, and think, what are the sort of things that I should be living out? What are the sort of things I should be prioritizing? We see four of them, not all of them, but four of them in Ezra 7. May God use these priorities to shape us, not just in August, not just in September, but for the rest of our lives, for his glory and for our eternal good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can know you truly through your word and that you hear us when we come to you through your son. That Jesus, right now, you are pleading for us. And God, Father, you hear us because of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would receive our worship this morning and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.